0: Uh, we are looking at Proverbs chapter thirty-one, and we're going to wrap up our series on Proverbs: Wisdom for Life. And we won't have time to look at all of Proverbs thirty-one, but I want to spend a few minutes in the first part of this. If you were here last week, I hope that during the week you've been able to practice at some point going back and touching the wall if you needed to. If few people, okay. If uh, if you weren't here last week, go back, have a listen to the message. Uh, But there was an invitation at the end of last week to say, when I was telling a story about that person who was attempting to get into the Olympic team. And they swam for the race of their life to, to make it into the team. And when they did their tumble turn at the end, they realized as they turned around to start swimming back that they had not actually touched the wall. And in a moment of needing to make a decision, do they just keep going? And this is in the era before they had the technology to to confirm whether they touched the wall wall or not. They made a choice of integrity to turn around, go back, and touch that wall. Knowing that this could cost them the very thing that they've been working their entire career towards. And they missed out. Because sometimes there's a cost. But this is what it means to be a person of integrity, a person who lives by our values and not just by what we get or what we want or how things are going to turn out for us. And during the week, I felt like um, a humbled and also equally a proud pastor at the same time, if you can actually be both of those. Because I had a few different people during the week that reached out to me To say, I need to have a touch the wall moment. And some of these conversations for people were tough. And I just walked away from each of those conversations just thinking, God, you're so good. You're so gracious. You're so kind. You're at work in people's hearts by your spirit. You're helping people make courageous choices and courageous decisions to do something that they might get away with, or they might not. But they made a choice to say, God, I want to walk your ways. I want to live my life in a way that honors you, that matches up with what are the values that I've committed to in my heart, where I've said, this is the kind of person that I want to be. And um, that's a that's an amazing thing. And I'm I'm humbled by those people that would um, say that to me. And maybe you've had other conversations with other people about that, that I don't need to be a part of. Um, but I'm humbled because this is the kind of community we want to be. And I am going to have to come to some of you at some point and say, hey, i got to have a go back and touch the wall moment. Or I'm coming to you to say, I need to talk about something, or I need to put something right, or I need to clarify something. And when we do those things, we should make sure that our posture is also and always one of humility and grace like God is towards us, that we would treat others in the way that God has always treated us, and that we would be kind and gentle and faithful, not judgmental, but standing with and being with people in those moments when they make decisions and choices that require courage and faith. Well, today we're going to talk about another aspect of this as we wrap this up, and we're going to begin in the first part of Proverbs chapter 31. And it says here the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance that his mother taught him. I want to pause just for a moment and just reflect on that line for a second. I've never preached a message on the sayings of King Lemuel, and I've never really focused much in on the inspired utterance that his mother taught him. But as I was reading and reflecting on this, Ryan O'Dowd makes a really interesting comment. He said, It was not uncommon for, peop- for women to be featured and even admired in ancient wisdom literature. But the advice from Lemuel's mother here is the only known incidence where a queen mother gives advice to a king. This is the first of several signs that this poem offers a subtle critique of royal culture that viewed women as sex objects and intellectually inferior. These are sayings to a king that are recorded for us to reflect on about what it would look like for us to live lives that are wise as opposed to lives that are foolishness and that walk the path of folly. And then verse 2 emphasizes this. Three times the phrase is said, Listen, my son. Listen, son of my womb. Listen, my son. The answer to my prayers. In this literature, when someone's saying the phrase, listen, three times, this is a cue to us to realize that they are emphasizing something that's super significant. And it says, do not spend your strength. This is coming from mother to a son. Who's a king on women? Your vigor on those who ruin kings. It's important to understand what this is not saying. This is not saying, do not buy your wife jewelry. I just need to clear the air on that. Um, This is not saying, do not be respectful and kind and generous What this is saying is, in your role in leadership, whatever your role and your function is, live up to its calling and its identity and its purpose. And do not walk the path of foolishness and folly by spending your resources and your time on things that will only end in ruin and making a mockery of who you are and what your role is about. the metaphors in this passage are metaphors that are sexual, echoing the man who's destroyed by a woman when in fact history and others of Scripture would remind us that it was the man's choice to actually put himself in the position in which his life would be ruined. And this is to be contrasted With placing oneself in a scenario that will bring disgrace to you and what your role in your life is about, as opposed to the contrast of the woman, the Hebrew word hael, which means vigor or strength or valor, who should be desired that we read about in verse 10 and then verse 29, commonly referred to as the Proverbs 31 woman. And we won't be spending a lot of time today reflecting on that part of the Scripture, but I will say this. The second half from verse 10 onwards to the rest of the end of Proverbs 31 is a passage of Scripture that has been at different points in history and in different times used as a weapon against women by some men, used as a way to be able to control a narrative that says, this is what you should be like. And one that has caused some women to feel this sense of overwhelm that how could anyone ever be like this woman in Proverbs chapter 31? Anyone know what I'm talking about? When in fact the passage, though it uses examples of that day's culture in the ancient Near East, of some of the things that a woman would do, is actually a metaphor that's tying together all of these proverbs and these collections of these 914 proverbs in saying this this image of the kind of woman that King Lemuel should be pursuing is a wise woman and not someone who's going to bring ruin to his path and his responsibilities and it's also a picture of what lady wisdom actually is a wise woman of character who's faithful and so it's aspirational for women but it's actually aspirational for men because this is what wisdom looks like and the attributes can be found and and can be sought after by men and women but it's a challenge from this mother to her son to consider his ways and the way that he conducts his life. If there's any challenge in this Proverbs 31, it actually tends to be towards the person in power, in this case the king, and how that they will conduct their life and how they will walk the path of wisdom. It goes on in verse 4. It is not for kings, Lemuel, It is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Let beer for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. This is an interesting passage because. If you take this literally, you will forget the actual point that's going on here and what the writer's getting at. This is not meant to be used as a verse to say one should never drink alcohol. This is a passage that's reminding a king who in the ancient Near East would have access to hard drinks, unlike the average person, who could spend their time however they wanted if they choose. But a challenge to them to not live their life wasting their life away, numbing themselves and dulling their senses, meaning that they won't be able to act justly and do their role with excellence. And it's almost sarcasm that's used here to kind of say, listen, if anyone's going to drink, drink like this, it's going to be someone whose life is just, they see no more point in their life. This would be why someone would turn to this to kind of numb their pain, which if it haven't worked out yet, pretty much the whole planet's worked out all of our own individual ways of trying to numb our pain, to try and deal with loss and those things in our life that are a struggle. But wisdom would ask us to self-reflect and say, what's going to most help me? And in this case, if you're in a, position of leadership like this king. And let me clarify, King Lemuel is not really noted as the as king of Israel, as you might expect coming in this. There's lots of um, ideas about who this person is. Some people assume that he was, it was another name for King Solomon. Uh, some people say he was the king of Massa, some people say it's just a pseudonym for someone who is in a position of leadership. But regardless, the writer of, this, of these proverbs that's put these together wants us to know that the person who's in a position of influence has a responsibility not to waste their life. The king must keep his wits to seek justice, to limit harm, and to care for the casualties of life that often slip through the cracks. And then the big challenge his mother puts to him. And remember three times she said, listen up. Listen up, my son. Listen, my son. Verse 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. In other words, discern Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is a great challenge to this son of this queen mother. You have a responsibility. You're in a position of influence, of of power. How are you going to use it? And she's calling him. She's speaking into who he is and his responsibility as a wise mother and saying, My son... Make sure you're diligent and you're faithful in your role. Do not walk the path of foolishness. Be responsible. Be disciplined. Understand that your role is not about you. It's about others. This is another way of speaking about what we will later come to know as servant leadership. Using the power and the privilege and the opportunity that you have to actually use it for other people's human flourishing. It's a challenging passage, and a passage that's super relevant for us as we begin this week, National Reconciliation Week. I don't know how many of you uh, have ever read the book by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Has anyone ever read the book here? How many people know about the book? Right. If you haven't read it, seriously, go have a read. It's a really great practical, it's one of the most famous kind of self-help books out there, but it's full of a lot of practical wisdom for how to live your life, how to navigate things. But when I was young, I was encouraged to read it, and there's a chapter or a section in the book that speaks about the way that we navigate our internal life. And there's a, there's a point that's made, and it's one of the chapter headings, which is, Seek first to understand, then be understood. And when I first read this as a young guy in my early 20s, it was a profound section of the book for me to read. And there's a number of really powerful stories and metaphors that are in there. And one of the things that the author begins by pointing out is, if you went to... How many people in here... Can I get a show of hands? How many people in here wear glasses? (laughs) So I do. So there's there's a fair chunk of us that need glasses. I need a new pair of glasses. I need glasses to be able to see long distance, which is why I've traditionally worn them. And then in the last 12 months, something's happened where now I need to print my words on this paper a little bit larger because now I also need apparently bifocals, which sounds terrible, uh, so that I can read. Because if you ever see me and I'm holding a Bible, this happened to me recently doing a wedding. I was literally doing the pushing the iPad away going, gosh, what is wrong with me? And that little reminder, I need to go back to the optometrist and get that prescription sorted. If you came to me and I was your optometrist and you said to me, hey, I've got a problem. I'm struggling to see up close. And then there are times when I'm driving in the car where I'm struggling to see the sign. And if the optometrist in the room just went, oh, wow, you know what you should do? And they took their glasses off and they said, here, pop these on your face. And you took their glasses, popped them on your face, and they said, how's that? And you went, well, I don't know. It still feels blurry. As a matter of fact, it feels even more blurry. And if... I, as your optometrist, turned around and said, listen, I'll give you these pair of glasses. Just wear them because they've been really good for me. That They've served me well. They helped me do my job well. Just wear them. They'll be great. They're actually expensive ones. They're good quality frames. There you go. Going to be generous. I'm going to help you out. Have a good day. You might be sitting there going, hang on a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need your glasses. I'm coming to you. So, you can understand what's actually happening with my eyes because I got a particular problem. And when I put your glasses on, I can't see clearly. As a matter of fact, it's making things worse. And if at that moment I turn back to you and I said, Oh my goodness, what a selfish person you are. How ungrateful are you? I've just given you my glasses, and you sit there and you have the hide to reject my offer of generosity, claiming after all the years that these glasses have done such a great job for me that you think you know better than me as an optometrist, I'm pretty sure you would be thinking, something's happened to my optometrist. They've lost the plot and I'm probably not coming back here anymore. Because you would walk back out to your car or to your transport and you'd be thinking to yourself, that was insane. That person did not listen to me. They did not understand what's happening for me. They've just imposed on me something that works for them and expected that that was also going to work for me. And we know that that's not how life works. And so one of the things that Stephen Covey is trying to point out in this book, and this chapter or the section of the book, is that it's really important, it's an act of wisdom, that we actually make a choice to seek first to understand what's happening for somebody else before we give them advice about what we think they should do. It's pretty, that's, that's good, wise advice. And even though I read that as a young person in my early 20s, it's taken me many years to really practice that and live that out. And it occurred to me when I was doing training for um, a, a coaching program that I was in some years back, When I was sitting in a session, I had a master coach sitting next to me, this lady who is absolutely brilliant, one of the great facilitators and trainers. And I was doing practice coaching with somebody else who was sitting across from me. And she kept stopping me and saying, you did it again. And I'd be like, oh, I'd be thinking, did I? She'd be like, and and we'd keep going in the session. She'd go, stop, take that back. You did it again. I'm like, oh my goodness. What was she correcting me on? She was correcting me because I wasn't asking questions to get understanding and to help guide that person to self-reflect. I was giving advice, which, by the way, was actually very good. <laughs> um, sometimes I, I say things out my mouth and I think, gosh, that's good. I should actually practice that. You ever caught yourself saying something to someone and you think, that's really good advice. You should, you should follow this advice. I should probably also start following this advice too. You don't normally say that part. You just think it in your head. But we can be really good at giving advice to other people about what we think from our perspective they should do. But it's one of the most unhelpful things we can do. One of the most unhelpful times we can ever do this is when someone's going through grief or pain or suffering or hardship. One of the greatest gifts, if you've done any kind of counseling training or support training, is to understand the greatest gift we give is a listening ear, is our very presence where we sit with and we allow others to express what's happening for them. And so when this passage says, speak up for those who have no voice, I would say in the context of the rest of Proverbs and in the way of Jesus, it's so important if we're going to speak up which is another way of talking about advocacy, that we actually know we're speaking up on behalf. Because the word, the passage here, when it says, for those who have no voice, is not meant to be a literal thing in which someone is mute. It's meant to be someone doesn't have the power, the opportunity, the influence to be able to advocate on behalf of themselves for what they need. And so they're reliant on somebody else who has a position or an opportunity or has the ear of someone who can make a decision or a choice to actually represent that person and speak up on their behalf. This is what we do for children. This is what we do for those who are going through a painful, difficult time who, because of the pain and the weight that they are carrying, they don't have the capacity to say what they really need. But let us not kid ourselves, if you're going to be a wise advocate, the most important thing you need to do is to understand what is really happening for them, and what they really need. And that when we think we've heard, check ourselves again and ask for greater clarity. When you say this, do you mean this? No, I mean this. Wow, I'm glad I clarified. It's just one of the most important things you can do. It's a loving thing to do. It's a wise thing to do. And it's a way that we can live out our calling to represent God in expressing justice and mercy and walking humbly with our God. My encouragement is this. Speak up after you've listened. And can I suggest... When we take the position, the humble position of a servant, like Jesus washing someone's feet, may we place ourselves in a position where we seek to learn, where we seek to listen, where we read, where we reflect, where we don't jump to quick advice and quick decisions and choices, but we actually make sure that what it is we're going to advocate on or speak up for, how we're going to act, is going to truly serve the best interests of this person and not just us, not just our reputation. Not just our nod to something that makes us look like we're an amazing helper or we're an amazing leader, but something that actually truly represents the person that it is that we're speaking up for. One of the things that I've been trying to focus on doing recently is focusing on my values over my opinions. I want to bring a confession of mine to you all this morning. I grew up in a middle-class family in Sydney, Australia where I never knew a single Indigenous person in our country. And it was normal and common for me at school, a Christian school that is, to make jokes about Indigenous people and not even think twice about it. And if you said to me, When I was older, after all the jokes and comments that I had made about people from different nations around the world who live in our country now, including us, who ultimately came from somewhere else, and you said, you're a racist, I would have been offended, and I would have said to you, you're out of line. And on top of that, I'm not racist, and I love everyone, and I want to walk Jesus' way. But I realized, as an adult, as I made a decision to listen and learn, and by listening to some friends of mine that were very challenging voices in my life, that sometimes we can't see in our lives and in the patterns of our behavior how our actions and our behaviors and our mindsets and our perspectives can actually be deeply ingrained in behaviors that have caused great pain for those around about us. And then I realized, when I started to learn about some of the history of our nation and some of the things that have taken place, once I moved past that aspect of feeling defensive, like, well, it wasn't me. I never did these things. And realized the history and what this means and the ongoing generational impacts of this on Indigenous people in our communities and in the country that we call home. When I started to really listen and learn I realized that my listening and learning had only gone a short distance. Because I started coming up with opinions and ideas and and advice and things that we could do that could make me more the hero of the story. And it's taken a whole lot of unlearning in me that still needs to take place to get to a point where when I hear about National Reconciliation Week and when I hear about Sorry Day and when I hear about NADOC Week, To not go back to mindsets and feelings and attitudes that have been so much ingrained in part of my life growing up. that I have to allow myself to walk into a position of saying, how I feel, how I think, my opinions, my perspectives may be flawed. They may not be the full picture. And I need to put myself in a position of humble learning. This week is National Reconciliation Week, which means a week where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples... And non-Indigenous people of all cultures that call this land Australia come together to learn more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and histories and to share that knowledge with others. This actually started after, in 1991, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody had 339 recommendations, of which only a handful have ever been implemented. The final recommendation, recommendation 339, said, initiate a formal process of reconciliation between Aboriginal people and the wider community. It was actually some people of faith in Christ that actually led the way when in 1993, the International Year of World's Indigenous Peoples, Christians began and started the week of prayer for Reconciliation. And then in 1996, the rest of society in Australia caught up with this idea and began what we now know as the first National Reconciliation Week. We have a referendum this year, and I'm not here to tell you how you should vote. Everyone has a conscience, everyone has a choice, you've got to do your research, but I want to encourage you, and I'll put a couple of websites up on the screen Go and read. Don't just go off whatever news media you listen to, no matter what end of the spectrum it is. Listen, learn, ask people that this actually impacts, not just, doesn't really have a huge impact on me. Learn. Hear different perspectives on different people. And be wise, but put yourself in the position of learning so that if you speak up, you know that you're speaking up based on your values and not just your opinions, because our values should always trump our opinions. You may have opinions, but your values of love and grace and justice and mercy should always trump how we behave. And so I say to you this morning, I've had to multiple times confess, man, my perspective is being narrow. But here's what I find. Every time I listen to people, when I think I know the story, I always walk away going, huh, huh, I never knew that. I didn't realize that. I didn't understand why this causes you so much pain. I didn't understand why, almost like years ago, I don't understand. Why can't they just get over it? You listen to the people that have sat in front of me and told me why they can't get over it. You will never say that phrase again. Which is why until you lose a child, someone says, why are you still grieving? When you have a child who has special needs and someone walks up to you in a shopping centre and says, well, in my day, we used to just discipline a kid like this who behaved like this in a shopping centre. And I let that person walk past when in my head I'm thinking, I wouldn't mind ankle tapping them right now and letting there be an episode right here in the middle of Woolworths. Because I used to think like that until it was my reality. So may we walk into a position of humility and we say, Lord, open our eyes and our ears. And may we speak up for those who have no voice.